Good evening. Our reading this evening is from Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. That's Luke, chapter 14, beginning at verse 25. Large crowds were travelling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, This person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Thank you very much, Sue. Good evening, everybody. Love to see you today. Uh, if you've got a Bible, um, it's page 1048 uh, of the Church Bibles. Uh, just have a look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother... Sorry, there's something I forgot to do. Um, I just wanted to welcome my mum to the service this evening. Just, <laughs> and thank Phil for giving me this passage. I'm just glad my dad and wife and children aren't here as well. But um, I slightly jest, but actually, when you heard that verse, what went through your mind? Because often, actually, sometimes it's the tricky verses in the Bible that unlock the whole passage. And it's verses like this that when we begin to get our head round, then suddenly it starts to make sense. So I don't know about you, but I think we should pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words. And Lord, we know sometimes it is hard to understand and hard to get our head over uh, and even harder to live. But we pray this evening, uh, as we come and look at your word together, that you may uh, just broaden our vision of who you are. Help us to see what great love you have for us and help us to live lives in light of that. Amen. Now, um, here's a question which I don't know, part of me hopes you've never asked, but, but it's this. Um, how do I become a Star Trek fan? Now, the, the good news is, um, is that if you go to Wikipedia or WikiHow, there are in fact uh, 12 uh, steps to becoming a true Star Trek fan. Uh, the first is you've got to decide whether you're going to be a Trekkie or a Trekker. 
apparently there's a difference. Uh, and people can get quite offended if you call them the wrong name. Um, but there you go. So you want to decide Trekkie or Trekker. Uh, you've obviously got to watch Star Trek. And I'm reliably informed that if you take a month off work, it will take you about 24 and a half days, solidly. So a month should about do it with, with breaks in between. That would give you all of, of Star Trek. Um, you obviously have got to read all of the, the associated sort of fan fiction and other bits that go with it. Um, you've got to join Memory Alpha, uh, which is the most accessible, so I'm told, accessible information gathering of all the Star Trek worlds. Um, you've got to um, talk the talk. You've got to live long and prosper and make it so, uh, and all those uh, fun things. Uh, you've got to know how to do that. Now, I, you know, I don't know. There it is. That's my version. Yeah, so I can see some of you secret trekkies. Um, you, 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 also, apparently, any uh, trekkie worth their salt will know the layout of the Starship Enterprise and be able to draw diagrams. Uh, that's something to do. Uh, you've got to play the games online. You've got to build models. Um, here's a key one. You've got to collect and display uh, Star Trek memorabilia uh, in your house. Uh, and uh, two, four things. You've got to bake treats. And perhaps one of the most important things, you've got to dress up and go to conventions. Uh, if you do those 12 things, then you are a Star Trek fan. You've, you've counted the cost of being a fan, you've gone in and you've entered the Star Trek worlds. What about a Christian? What about a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christian? And then now, right at the top, if you forget everything else in this sermon, hear this. A Christian is somebody who has been loved and saved by Jesus. A Christian is somebody who the Lord Jesus left his home in heaven, came to walk the earth, died upon a cross, rose three days later and ascended to heaven. You're a Christian because of his work, not yours. You're a Christian not because you followed 12 steps, but because he came to this world to seek and save you. That's how we become a Christian. That's the gospel. But here, verse 25, large crowds are travelling with Jesus and turning to them, he says, here Jesus is speaking to the masses, he's speaking to those who are his followers and those who aren't. And here he's saying, not how do you become a Christian, but he's saying, look, this is what it will mean to follow me. When you become my disciple, this is what it looks like. And in broad brushstrokes, verse 26 and 27, he says, it means putting me first. Being a follower of Jesus is to put Jesus first. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. It's stark language, isn't it? Unless you hate these things, you cannot be my disciple. But what does that mean? Well, well first of all, let, let's say what we know it doesn't mean, what it can't mean. Well, it can't mean 
not to love your parents. Jesus says in Mark 7, or honour your father and mother. It can't mean not to love your spouse. He says in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ gave the church up for her. It can't mean sort of not loving your children. He says in Mark 10, uh, he called the little children to come to him. He took them in his arms. It can't mean uh, sort of not being reconciled because he said in Matthew 5, be reconciled to each other. Indeed, in Luke 6, he said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In Mark 12, love your neighbor as yourself. We might say, actually, what Jesus really uh, teaches in the the whole gospel is uh, we cannot love each other enough. We cannot love uh, too much. So what does he mean? Well, he's saying love for Jesus must be uh, so great that our, our love for others almost pales into comparison. It's almost as if it's so small that we could say that we hate them. Because love for Jesus is absolutely primary. But we've also got to remember the, the culture that Jesus is speaking into. He is not speaking to a people uh, who live in 21st century Western world. Uh, where being a Christian uh, and being part of the family just can coexist very happily. Uh, no, the culture of the day is far more like that of the Middle East today. Or, or if you hear this morning, like Vietnam. It's a place uh, where Jesus is saying, look, if you follow after me, then your family will reject you. Uh, families will say, look, if you're going to follow Jesus, you are not part of this family. Uh, the majority of this world, or certainly a large proportion, Christians will hear, hear them to being told, look, by their family, if you follow me, you are not part of this family. Christians will be told, you'll be cut off from this family, which in some cases means... You'll be, we'll treat you as if you were dead. You'll be cut out of the family inheritance. We'll have nothing to do with you. We won't talk to you. We won't be with you. In some places, being cut off means we won't simply treat you as if you were dead. We will actively try and kill you as they experience death threats. Ultimatums for most Christians are common. And it's into that culture that Jesus is speaking. He's saying, look, you can't have one foot here and one foot there. That's not how it works. You have to be wholeheartedly after me. He's really saying, deciding to follow me involves a decisive step to change your whole world. It's the start of a journey which is leading to an execution Verse 27, and whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Uh, Deciding to follow Jesus is a decisive step. And that journey continues. To follow Jesus 
day by day, to take up their, uh, their cross, to take up their, their mode of execution, day by day. And that's what life is like for many Christians. Uh, at this point, I was looking through various Christian news outlets to, to tell a story of somebody who, who, whose life that was like. And it would have been helpful. But at the same time, I don't know about you, sometimes I hear stories and I, I get the point and I, I get sort of emotionally engaged in it, but, but then I forget. It's kind of, well, that's them, it's not me mentality. So really, what I want us all to do is, is not simply to hear stories from the preacher at the front. Uh, we all need to be having a bigger worldview, a bigger understanding of what it's like for Christians uh, in this world. If we just simply rely upon the BBC to tell us what's happening in the world, then ultimately, I, I don't know, but I imagine that the news editor isn't a Christian. They're, they're certainly from the West. And so you're relying upon somebody who's not a Christian, who lives in your culture, to tell you what the world is like. Now, don't get me wrong, I, I watch the BBC News all the time. I look at the BBC News channel. It's very helpful. But if that's our only source of information, we're just not going to get the bigger picture. You know, we need to let Scripture dictate our worldview, and we need to, to look out for other sources of information. We need to go to places like Open Doors, not just once for one story, but regularly hearing stories, getting newsletters, going to, to Operation World, going to the Joshua Project, just expanding our horizon to see what it means to be a Christian in the world. Because what we experience today in the 21st century in the UK is not normal. It's not normal geographically and it's not normal historically. We need to have a bigger view of what it means to follow Jesus of what it means to say, you are first and you have my whole, whole life. But we do also need to apply this into an individual level as well. When you read those words and heard those words, it, it can rub home a bit, can't it? But let me say this. The more that we love Jesus, that the more that we lift up our gaze to him, the more we long to be like him, the more we will become like him. But the more that we'll become like his character, we'll become more like his kindness and goodness and grace. Uh, the more we become like him, the more longing we'll have for others. And so therefore, the more we long to be like Jesus, the better Husband, wife, mother, father, son, daughter, friend, co-worker will be. It's not an either or. No, follow after Jesus, become like him, know him, follow him, and you will be a better husband, wife, father, daughter, mother, son, friend, co-worker. It's not either or. But I know reading these words could be really hard. And I know it can be really hard for some sat here today. Perhaps especially for those who may be married to somebody who's not a Christian. 
And if they were here, sat next to you this evening, and they heard me say that Jesus had to be first in their life and not them, that's really hard. It's really, really tough. Because you know how they're going to feel, and you know that the the drive home is not going to be a fun one. If that's you, then know that, that we're praying for you. I prayed for you before this sermon. It's hard. As a church, we want to pray for you and love you and support you. But also pray as well. Pray for yourself. Pray to think, uh, how can you use, uh, how can you know Jesus better? Because remembering that, the more we love Jesus, the better spouse we will be. But also praying about how you use your time and praying for your spouse. It is a hard place to be. We're praying for you and pray as well. And if you're not married here this evening, then think carefully about who you might marry. Could, how would they answer that question about who should be number one? It's a really important question to consider. But it, it shouldn't just impact those sort of relationships, sort of marriage relationships. Actually, if Jesus is number one, it ought to impact how we pray and our priorities in our relationships. So consider this. Um, what, what dictates your prayers? Uh, just think back to the last time you, you sat down and prayed on your own or, or maybe in your small group. Uh, do you spend more time praying for people to be uh, happy and healthy or knowing Jesus more and more? Are our prayers simply about uh, helping people get on in this world, or are they about knowing Jesus? Now, of course, we know we want to, by all things, in prayer and petition, present our requests to God. We want to pray about all things. It's right and good to pray for those things. But if that's all we pray for, or to put it more starkly, if you have children, what, what do you want most for your children? What's the, the big thing you want for them in life? Is it to, uh, to be happy, to be married, to have a stable job, an income, a, no mortgage, good education for grandkids? Or is it to know Jesus? How does this passage shape our priorities of our prayers, of our wants and desires? Remembering, if Jesus is number one, we will do these things as well. In fact, we'll do them much better. So let's go after Jesus. But that's hard, isn't it? That's hard. Which is why, verses 26 to 33, Jesus says, think about it. Think about it. And he gives us two illustrations. He he gives the illustration of a man who's going to build a tower. And he says, look, he's going to sit down and think if he can do it before starting. And he gives the illustration about um, someone going to war. He's got 20,000 soldiers coming towards him and saying, can, I, can, we, can we fight with 10,000 or do I need to send a delegation of peace ahead? Uh, but do you notice that in each of those cases, verse 28, suppose one of you wants to build a tower, won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Verse 31, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider 
whether he's able to able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. Sit down. What's Jesus mean? Is he saying you make a better decision if you're sat down on a chair? No. He's saying, don't react, reflect. Don't react, reflect, take time. This is a big decision that needs your full attention. Take time to make it. Because if in the builder's case, if, if he tries to build a tower and he, he realises funds have disappeared, he's going to be a laughing stock. And in the example of the king, if he goes to war and then realises he hasn't got a hope, all will perish. They've got to take time, reflect, and count the cost. And then Jesus summarises it really by saying, verse 33, In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Everything. <laughs> Sounds a lot the same. Give up everything you have. Not one thing held back. Every bit of time, energy, emotion, relationship, resource. Everything. All in. That's the cost. But what this passage doesn't do... It doesn't point out the one who say, who's saying these words to begin with. The big neon sign that reminds us that it is Jesus who says these words. Who, verse 26, was so focused on loving the Father that his main attention and aim and goal was, was about pleasing him, that he left the throne of heaven and came to earth. Who, verse 27, said to the people, following me, it's a bit like taking a cross. That, that's a metaphor for you to use. That's a story. But he said that knowing his face was Jerusalem. He said that knowing he was going to a literal cross. It wasn't a metaphor for him. It was a real, real thing. In verse 28, he's the one who said, Father, if there's another way, I've counted the cost. If there's another way, take this cup from me, but I know there isn't. He's one who, verse 33, gave it all for you and for me freely. Now, I know that falling off to Christ may cause heartache. It may cause pain in our life. Because there may be relationships of people that don't like that, that are going against the grain. It may be that we have to swallow pride and swallow sin and say, I'm sorry. But actually, that is the way to life. We're saying that this is the cost of following Jesus, but, but really, is it a cost at all? Let me give you an example. It'd be a bit like me going off to Jeff Bezos, Mr. Amazon. 
and saying, Jeff, have everything that I have. The lot. But in return, he's going to give me everything he has. The lot. Is that a cost on my part? The Lord Jesus says, I will take all of you, all your sin, all your debt, all your shame, everything. And in return, I will give you my life. So where does that leave us? Well, verses 34 and 35. If you follow Jesus, it needs to show. If you follow Jesus, it needs to show. Now, Jesus here uses an illustration of salt. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now, now we don't know what he's thinking when he says usefulness. Uh, Salt was used for a whole different variety of things in the, the ancient Near East. But what Jesus is absolutely clear on is saying, if it loses its saltiness, it's useful for nothing. It can't even decompose in the manure heap. It just has to be thrown out. If you follow Jesus, it needs to show. Now, what he's not talking about here is being a Christian. We said that at the beginning. Becoming a Christian is not about what we do. It's about what the Lord Jesus has done. Rather, it's about being useful in his kingdom, about being fruitful in his kingdom. He's saying, look, if, if you're not following me, if you're not wholeheartedly following me, then you're just like that salt. Useless. You may find yourself being ridiculed. You may find yourself the laughing stock and being at the wrong end of things. If we don't put Jesus first, then we're just like the useless salt. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be that salt. Uh, last week I was at um, Sussex University Christian Union and I was speaking on a, a title saying, what is my purpose? And the big idea I was trying to communicate was saying, look, our purpose is found not in what we do or who we are, but in who we know. Our purpose is found in knowing Jesus. And so if you know Jesus, that's our big purpose in life. So you can do what you like. Uh, you can be a, a professional footballer or a foot cleaner. You can be a bin man or a banker. It doesn't matter. If you know Jesus, that's your purpose. But then put the other way. Not, not simply if we're not living for Jesus, then whatever we do, will not have purpose. It'll be useless. It'll be purposeless. So as we come to a close this evening, let's listen to those last words of Jesus. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So where does this hit home for you? What relationship Uh, was the Lord placing upon your heart as you heard his word? What response was he asking for? What area of life do we need to give over to the Lord and say, Lord, be first? 
the Lord says, give me everything. And he's wondering, asking, will we go? And the first thing to remember is, it cost him everything. And he went. So this evening, before anything else, you are loved. Because he first loved us. So now this evening, tomorrow, what will it mean for us to go and do the same?